Hey, good evening, everybody. Just waiting, a few more people still coming on, so we'll just wait for a second or two. And here we are, our last evening together. So uh, time flies very quickly. And uh, just really acknowledging uh, the significance of the fact that it's our, our last evening together. And really appreciating, you know, Chris and Matt and I all really um, moved by your commitment and your participation and uh, have really been enjoying running this experiment with you and uh, co-creating the this strange experience of a an online retreat and uh, you know what we all bring to this is uh, that creates the retreat so you've all you've all created this together and uh, we really appreciate that and uh, tonight we're going to continue in experimental mode and uh, Chris and I thought that we would offer some joint reflections together on the topic of the Brahma Viharas, these qualities that we've been exploring and practicing together in the afternoons. And uh, this is an experiment and um, we'll see what happens. But uh, it's kind of nice, it, you know, just as we've been reflecting how there's something strange about the fact that there really is a sense of community and being together on the call and at the same time it makes it feel almost more intense that sense of separation and that we're all in our own spaces and don't actually see one another in the flesh and it's a bit the same being on a teaching team as well it's not usual for us to be working together and you know communicating by whatsapp behind the scenes rather than kind of sitting down together and you know checking in about how it's going and so on so um yeah, it's just an interesting time and situation for all of us. And uh, so we'll, we'll just see what happens this evening. And uh, those of you who are familiar with this territory will know that um, talking about these four qualities in 45 minutes is a, it's kind of a tall order. And we don't expect to give a comprehensive set of reflections or necessarily to cover everything. And uh, we'll pick up some threads tomorrow. Um, things that we would we find we'd like to have covered and we don't get to cover this evening. So um, just to, to begin really by um, this, this, these words Brahma Viharas may be very, very familiar to some of you, to some of you may be completely new. So um, these are four qualities. Uh, Metta, M-E-T-T-A, which is usually translated as loving kindness or friendliness, being a word that we quite like to use for this. Uh, compassion, karuna. Uh, appreciative joy, which is mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A. And equanimity, which is upeka, U. 
P-E-K-K-H-A. Not necessary to remember these spellings or these Pali words if uh, they're unfamiliar to you. And uh, Brahma is the leader of the gods, the, the, the inhabitant of the highest heaven realm in the um, ancient Buddhist cosmology. And so really this is, to, this is to bring home the fact that these, these are blessed states or uh, states of the highest bliss or the highest happiness. The gods are, are said to in, inhabit the, the realms of highest happiness. And we can either think of that literally or we can think of it as actually being um, the most blissful states of mind that one can inhabit as a human being. And a vihara is a dwelling place or an abiding place, a place that you live, a place that you make your home. And I really like the way that that connects with our English word of habit. Habit also has a connection with a, a dwelling place, a habitat. And so these are really um, heavenly habits of mind. And I was thinking earlier that actually they are the habits of mind of a wise person. In a way, you could say that they're the dwelling places of the wise mind or the wise heart. So I really I think that they are inextricably bound up with uh, wisdom and the cultivation of wisdom. But actually, um, when we think of what wisdom really is or what constitutes a wise person, a wise person is someone who always acts for the welfare or the well-being of a situation or others. That's part of, that's kind of inbuilt into the definition of or the way that we use wisdom, how we think about wisdom. So you could also think of them as dwelling places of the, the wise heart. And these qualities, uh, as we've said in the afternoons, they're really intimately connected with one another. They grow out of one another. You can almost think of them as four facets of a single jewel. And the basic vibration of them all is this quality of friendliness or metta. Metta, the etymology of metta is related to the word friend. So these are what the heart is capable when it relates to experience uh, with friendliness. Chris, do you want to pick up some th threads? <clears throat> well, I, I really, I really like the threads you've you've offered to us, Jaya, and uh, you know this teaching does ask us what do we want to make our home in. You know, what intentions, what orientations do we want to naturalize in our lives? You know, it's, which is a very kind of fundamental question for each of us as a human being, isn't it? Because we always end up naturalizing something or some intentions. And these offer us these kind of optimal intentions that really almost like the four cardinal points of the compass uh, can hold all of our experience, you know, can hold the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of, of every human life. And, you know, that's really such a blessing to have 
a field that can hold our experience, compass orientations to support us in the midst of any experience. And, you know, I, I love what you said, Jaya, about the Brahma quality. And for me, there's almost a sense you can't have too much of any of these qualities. You know, you can't have too much uh, kindness, compassion, joy, or equanimity. People sometimes talk about compassion fatigue, but I wonder whether that's actually when the compassion isn't balanced by other Brahma Viharas. So perhaps instead of compassion fatigue, we should talk about joy deficit. And that, that as our compassion deepens and grows, we just need to you know, make sure that the joy and uh, the kind of resourcing is really infused in it and enable it to become more, more boundless. Yeah, so Jaya. Well, we're gonna to have to work out, this is maybe the first time a Dharma talk has ever been jointly given on Zoom. So a kind of etiquette about over to you kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, well, as, as you were talking about, you can't have you can't have too much of any of these qualities. Um, the, the sense of the Buddha speaking about them as being limitless, limitless impossibility uh, came to my mind. And uh, how that uh, one of the ways of, of liberating the heart, and we talk, we've been talking about, you know, things that, things that bind us to suffering and things that unbind us. And one of the, meditations or cultivations of the heart and mind because it's not just only when you're sitting still cross-legged in meditation but one of the cultivations that he recommended for the liberation of the heart is the development the the endless the limitless development of these four qualities and he said that it's like a, you, you radiate them out in all directions this is the ideal, but I think it's a really, uh, for me, it's a really beautiful and inspiring image. The way to cultivate them is to, to extend them in all directions. And he said, it's like a, you have in the, in, in the ancient uh, Himalayas, the way to send a message from one place to another was to stand on a high mountain and blow a conch shell. And they had people who were expert conch shell blowers and the sound could be heard in all directions. And it's the same with the, the vibration of these qualities. And I like, I like the word, thinking of them as a kind of um, vibrational frequency of consciousness that uh, is available to us all the time that we can tune into, we can attune to, and we can learn to uh, hum along, if you like, or that we can learn to let our, our, um, our awareness, our intentions, our mind states, tune more and more and rest more to those frequencies that and that they can they permeate in ways that we probably don't even understand but we do we resonate along with the mind qualities of one another you know you probably notice how you you spend time in the company of a kindly person or a joyful person and your own heart catches the flavor of it you spend time with somebody who's experiencing a lot of negativity and it's not, it's not, uh, it's not 
easy to not get sucked into some of that oneself. Like we, we, we resonate with these qualities in one another. And so what kind of resonance do we want to seek out, attune to and develop in, in this particular heart? They are very relational, aren't they, in that way? Very much about our relationship with ourselves, with each other, with life. You know? And <clears throat> just, uh, if it's okay to move on to, to metta, you know, I'm always struck by there was a, an 18th century Tibetan who's called Shabka who said to try to meditate without friendliness is simply to inflict hardship on yourself. And you may have noticed that, right? <laughs> you know, we could almost say to, to try to live without friendliness is to just inflict hardship on ourselves and on each other. And, and really to kind of, um, in a certain way, uh, find the word for this quality that has most meaning for us individually. Sometimes I find, I was saying to Jaya earlier, I find the kind of phrase boundless friendliness is inspiring, but it's quite idealistic. Whereas, you know, if we take this word and even the word loving kindness, that translation can feel kind of, uh, well, a bit of a stretch sometimes. You know? Whereas friendliness or basic friendliness or goodwill or warmth, or Pema Chodron, she has a translation, an unconditional sense of humor, you know, and, and just to feel how, what helps to just soften the heart in that way, in the, in the beautiful way that Matt guided us a couple of days ago. Um, and, and just really to kind of find that, that basic well-wishing, basic well-wishing that the Buddha said in his, teachings on metta is is the best way to live in this world it's that important you know it's that important we may have heard a hundred talks on metta before this evenings and can we have that sense of okay it's that important that it's worth me continuing to cultivate this yeah and i think that um one of the things that's taken me much too long in my life to, to realize is that uh, the reason that we do this is that it feels good. You know, it feels much better to be inhabiting a space of friendliness and goodwill than it does to be inhabiting a space of ill will or discontent or complaining or judging or all these things that our minds are so well trained to do and you know when you when you hear instructions like you should it's good for you to practice loving kindness or you should practice loving kindness um, it can sound like something of a something of a chore you know but actually the cultivation of metta when you notice yourself uh, lit up in a space of friendliness even just somebody does something kind for you in the supermarket queue or says thank you when you step off the step off the pavement for them to maintain social distance or gives you a smile you know something lights up and it feels good 
and so this 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 is really um, inextricable from our quest for happiness and so then we can also see well what's what's the opposite of the experience of metta you know what are the opposite things that we could also be cultivating because whatever we unconsciously practice or make a habit of the mind um, you know that that starts getting wired in and so if our habit is to find faults and complain and if we overdose on tuning ourselves to other people or to you know uh, I'm thinking at the moment you know more of us are spending time listening to media than we might be talking to other people uh, you know, if we're constantly um, tuning to a frequency of uh, judgment and blame and criticism, then actually, what does that feel like in the heart? You know, what does anger or ill will, so anger being the kind of extreme, you know, the, the heated form of the opposite of metta, it's actually, it feels painful. So the, the Buddha described ill will as being like, um, like being in a cauldron of boiling water. It's like this, this feeling inside is profoundly unpleasant. It's actually a source of suffering. It, it's not, uh, not even just a source of suffering, but it's an immediate experience of suffering. And the more we realize that, the more we actually recoil from that and naturally start to gravitate to something else. And to realize that the something else is actually really possible for us. It's not so far away in our experience if we get used to appreciating it and tuning into it and to intentionally cultivating it. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you mentioning those kind of lockdown experiences, Jara, because do you remember um, in those, you know, particularly in the early days of the pandemic when there was so much fear and you could kind of feel it if you went out into the, the streets or the shops and just what a difference a smile could make. Just what a difference to say a kind of cheery hello or somebody says a cheery hello to us and gives us a smile. And the Buddha taught metta, first of all, as an antidote for fear. And, you know, it's so easy, isn't it? Or, it, you know, you probably you know, had that experience like I did of going in and feeling how contagious the fear can be and how it closes and cramps and freezes the heart. Um, and what a difference when we can just kind of almost turn outwards and, and just wish someone well. You can feel like one's fear levels drop just by offering a smile, you know. And we now know the kind of neuroscience of that, but it's such a beautiful thing in, in fearful situations to offer kindness, isn't it? We feel less afraid, other people feel less afraid. And I, I was mentioning to Jaya earlier, I once heard our, our teacher Kitisaro talk about being a meta sweeper. So he talks about going into public places and just as you're kind of walking through the shopping mall or on the underground in, in London or Paris or whatever city and just when you can sense that people you know could be closed down just to have that sense in your heart of wishing them well may you be well may you be peaceful you know you don't may not need to say anything but it's just transforms the experience it really transforms the experience from fear 
to something that's just more nourishing, more easeful, more, more, more joyful and healing of that sense of disconnection. And just to say that, you know, the practice involves starting where it's easiest. You know, this is such a key piece in the Dharma, isn't it? If, if I start trying to wish well to all living beings, I may kind of just collapse in the face of just how impossible that feels. But if I start wishing well to my cat or to, you know, the neighbor next door, or that friend who I really find it easy to love, and there's that sense of almost like we, we start wishing well where it's easiest and build stability and then expand. Build stability and then expand. And Christina Feldman sometimes talks about how important the neutral category is. So in the, the Vedana scheme that Jaya and Matt have both referred to, of pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, you know, most of the world's population is pretty neutral to us because we don't have a shared story. And how easy it can be to stop paying attention to those with whom we don't have a shared story. And, you know, we have in the politics of the last few years, I think, really seen the cost of that, haven't we? Where people just become neutral and we stop really caring about their well-being. We stop really seeing their humanity. And so there's something quite radically, in the best sense, political, I think, about really wishing well across the spectrum, whoever we meet, you know, the people who, who it's, we know, but also those with whom we may have just quite functional relationships and we could easily overlook. Do you remember, I can't remember whose, whose quote this is, but I, I, possibly I've heard it from Christina, but that an enemy is somebody whose story you haven't heard. It was James Baldwin. Oh, was it James Baldwin? Yeah. 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 Which is, as you were talking though, I was also thinking about, you know, the challenge of, uh, maintaining, sustaining that stance towards people that we find really, really difficult. You know, even if I've heard somebody's story, I might still not have much sympathy with them. And uh, there are people uh, in our personal lives and in public life who, who can give rise to a lot of quite um, justifiable anger and even fear in us. And so, you know, when, when that's what the heart is experiencing, sometimes to impose an injunction towards goodwill on it feels is, is too much. Mm -hmm. And then, then actually to turn the goodwill towards ourselves, towards ourselves in the midst of that experience of, you know, being unable to extend our, our, extend our meta that far or being able to unable to let go of fear in those situations is really important. Mm. So I, ca I came across a, a Tibetan saying earlier today when I was rummaging around that they, they talk about placing our fearful mind in the cradle of loving kindness. And I found that really beautiful. Sometimes my, 
fearful mind, which can get quite activated these days because there's a, when one really thinks about uh, the, the predicaments that we're in, it's quite frightening. And, and yeah, I know enough to know that a frightened mind isn't much use to anybody. And it, you know, it's, it's simply a source of suffering. And so to place that fearful mind in the cradle of loving kindness, one starts activating, again, that quality of metta or the quality of compassion alongside the fear. And I, I, I again, saying, as I've said before, I, re I really what, love what Chris said earlier in the retreat about really noticing how different states of mind, different qualities of heart can coexist within the same experience. That the, the presence of fear or the presence of ill will doesn't make it impossible to actually start engaging these other qualities of compassion or kindness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of you have been sharing in the small groups about your experience of difficult people in your lives, you know, family members, friends, people at work. And it, it feels so important that we don't hear the word boundless as meaning not having appropriate boundaries. And, you know, sometimes we really need to reclaim our no as the kindest, the kindest practice of metta for ourselves and for others, you know. And, you know, that may mean placing the difficult person at some distance from us, you know. Like in, in meta meditation, you know, sometimes we have to imagine that person in black and white or imagine them the far side of town, shrunk to the size of a postage stamp, and then kind of gradually bring them closer to that place where I can still keep a sense of safe ground and caring for this body and heart mind and somehow allow them still to be in the field of, of my, my awareness. And that's a patient work and you know metta and compassion can be fierce they can be fierce they they they, they need that the tradition honors that the tibetan images of compassion sometimes have flaming swords and you know have a kind of potency to them that that says no but also says and i refuse to hate I refuse to give in to ill will because we know that to commit to ill will is the gateway to hell in our own hearts and in our communities, in our families and in our lives. So we may not be able to wish well, but can we, can we just as a protection practice, not at least wishing ill? Oh, I'm conscious of the time and we've only covered uh, <laughs> one Brahma Vihara so far. So maybe we should move on, do you think, Jaya? Yeah, well, but I'm thinking we've kind of snuck around that. I've yes. described four points of the compass and we're kind of sneaking around the compass already. And yes. it's, I was just thinking there isn't like a sharp cutoff point between... Mm. Uh, a demarcation line between metta and compassion. It's actually that metta 
uh, shades into compassion as it starts to encounter what's what's difficult. Mm -hmm. So we're already touching yeah. into that territory of um, what happens when the benevolent heart encounters challenge or difficulty or suffering. And then, you know, it's how can it stay in touch with suffering and remain friendly and not actually fall into ill will, to blame, to trying to get rid of suffering, but to try to actually, the, the movement of the heart that wants to um, soothe or to alleviate, so maybe get rid of in the sense of actually, I want the suffering to be eased, but I'm not gonna go in there with the sense of I've got to annihilate what's there because I can't tolerate being in the presence of suffering. So just like, you know, one of the classic images is, is what do you do as a mother if your child has flu, you know? You don't kind of banish them from the house. You, and you also, you know that there is uh, a limit to what you can do to actually, um, you can't make the flu go away, but you look after them, you tend to them, you soothe them until, until that situation passes. And it's a bit the same, you know, with, um, yes, with other situations. And, and would it be fair to say, do you think that, that compassion is what arises when metta encounters suffering and that mudita or, or appreciative joy is what naturally kind of, it's the way metta morphs when it encounters something uplifting or something lovely. And in that way, they are both empathic, aren't they? In a certain, one is empathic for the joyful, the other is empathic for the suffering and you know I, I love how you kind of give that sense of these are inseparable you know they're not just four random qualities that the Buddha plucked out of the tradition you know previous traditions and and uh, kind of tied together we can feel the organic interconnection and mutual support of these can't we and I mean maybe just to say that the tradition tends to go meta and then compassion. And we've been reflecting on, you know, the value of just acknowledging appreciative joy and enjoyment as part of what creates the resilience and the capacity in our heart to be with suffering. And how crucial that is in these times, how crucial it is for all of us in caring roles, how crucial it is for activists, how crucial it is for, for parents and partners and friends and everybody really to be taking care of our heart's well-being through a daily practice of enjoyment to support our capacity to, to resonate in the way you describe Jaya with suffering. I like that you mentioned the word resilience because that was just what was coming to my mind as well. And I was thinking about um, the Dalai Lama actually, and how it's how it's possible to move between these these states in the flick of an eyelid. 
there's a very beautiful film that, that was, I think it was the Dalai Lama's 85th birthday this past week. And there's a very beautiful film that's been made, a documentary actually, that he narrates himself, um, that had a pre-online preview. Some of you may have seen it um, the week, last weekend or the weekend before, but it will be much, it'll be widely available soon, I imagine. Um, and just uh, what an extraordinary being and what an extraordinary life. But one of the things, if you've ever uh, had the chance to see him either in person or on, uh, you know, on, on film or television or whatever, uh, he, he has this capacity to listen to really terrible stories of the suffering that his own people and others have undergone and be completely with them and completely resonating with that. And he, he's one of these people who, one of my friends has what, what someone calls a high water table, that, that he tears up very easily. And yet the next moment he can be laughing with somebody else. And the, the heart has such resilience that it can just, with total um, uh, authenticity, move between these states. And I think that's actually, we haven't really spoken of equanimity and we probably won't get to that this evening. But to me, that is kind of the hallmark of equanimity is that one is so balanced that you have that resilience that you can, you, the heart will just respond in the appropriate way, whatever, um, whatever comes before it, whatever it means. And, and when His Holiness, the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness, one can really sense it, that's not a glib statement. <laughs> You know, that's a very profound statement. And what would it be to make that commitment ourselves? You know, I was remembering when Jaya and I watched the film preview together and seeing him in Northern Ireland in 1999, just about 18 months after the Good Friday Agreement. And, you know, I remember him, him saying then, you know, I practice, he said, I try to greet everyone I meet like an old friend. And he was there, and I will always remember seeing him with, with one arm round a leading Catholic priest and the other arm round a, a Protestant minister. And just, he was, there was just such a sense of friendliness and also such a sense of playfulness. He met with victims of violence on both sides. And you can imagine at that stage how tense the room was before he arrived. And after a few minutes, he started putting a cushion on his head to, to, to block out the sun which was coming and he just got everybody laughing. And one really gets the sense that that kind of playfulness is, is so deeply skillful, you know, and enabled him just minutes later, as Jaya said, to be weeping with people who were telling such poignant stories. And so one gets the sense and all of us can, can, can play with this in our lives of just these, the connection between these different qualities. One does get the sense of him as being an immensely playful person. And he, you know, he talks also in this, this film about how all he wanted to do as a young boy was play, that he was really not into his study or his training at all. And he still seems to be that playful. And yet another thing that struck me that he shared was um, 
how he get his, his morning meditation regime. And that is sort of beyond, beyond the wildest dreams of most of us, that he gets up at 3.30 and meditates for four or five hours every day before he engages in all the things he has to do. But what struck me more than that was that he said the first thing when he wakes up in the morning, he turns his thoughts to actually the wish for the welfare of all beings. And I just found that so moving and profound and actually in a sense doable as an, or, or re, that to me is not an unattainable aspiration for myself to just build a habit of what does one think of first thing in the morning? How do we want to orient our mind? Because for me, often what happens is you wake up and the worry habit kicks in or something, but to, to really, um, you know, use some of these teaching and, and these beautiful aspirations to set a compass can be really, really helpful, I think. Um, and one could experiment and see how that goes. And, and to really also, but one has to do that really with the recognition that wishing well to all beings means all beings, including oneself. It's not at the expense of oneself, not a, a lesson in self-denial. Just but tuning that quality and what that the heart in whatever way actually uh, resonates with us as the as the one's top priority when one wakes up would be really powerful and and kind of raises the question for whom are we practicing you know. And just notice our unconscious perceptions around that as well as our conscious ones. You know? And it's so easy, isn't it, to have a sense, well, I'm practicing to deal with my suffering or my stress. But what a inspiring, helpful, supportive intention it is to say, okay, I dedicate this practice as an offering into this world. You know, to have... I, I get up and I, I have that intention of wishing well. And when I sit, you know, it's interesting to see and lovely to see so many of you kind of put your hands together at the end of a sitting. And Joseph Goldstein really encourages us when, when we do that to have a sense of, okay, I offer the benefits of this sitting for the sake of those who are suffering or for the sake of all living beings or for the sake of that particular person who I know is really struggling and as he puts it you can have sat there for you know 40 minutes and your mind has been all over the shop and you know you feel like well that was a bit of a lousy meditation and i still offer the benefits of it you know and that there's something very beautiful about the kind of getting into the rhythm of that that dedication of one's practice and, and one's life for the well-being of others it, it, it's part of what, rather like the, the chanting, it just helps dissolve the kind of prison of self-absorption that sometimes practice can collude with or kind of intensify. I could come in with one other little piece of that, if, unless you've got, are you ready to say something, Jack? No, come in with something. Are you sure? Okay. Well, it was really just picking up part of what you were saying about, you know, listening. You, you, you named that word listening. 
and really just the acknowledgement of how important listening is, deep listening for all of these qualities. You know. um, as Jaya translated, Kuan Yin means the one who listens to the cries of the world. We could say the one who listens with equanimity and compassion to the cries of the world. And I love how in the Pali for the word compassion, there are two words that are both translated as compassion. One is the word anukampa, which means to tremble with, to resonate with, to, to feel the sorrow of. And the other is karuna, which means to turn outwards and to seek to alleviate, to, to engage with, to try to heal in some way. And that we need both in our compassion. We need both in our response to actually joy and to, to sorrow. A deep listening that enables our action or our engagement with others to be attuned, to be situationally attuned. And, and that that's, that's really key, isn't it? Because otherwise we're compassionate people looking for our next project, you know, or just keen to fix other people, you know. And, and that deep listening, or fix ourselves, you know, that deep listening enables a kind of presence with others or with our own body and heart. And the arising of potentially an appropriate response, an appropriate response to the suffering and to the joys that uh, we experience in ourselves and others. I'm thinking what it's like to be on the receiving end of metta or compassion or appreciative joy and how maybe it's true for many of us as I certainly feel it is for me that actually one of the things that creates the most sense of well-being and relief in my heart is when I feel really heard really listened to, really seen, that just that act of really listening to somebody is an expression, whether it's listening to ourselves or listening to another person is really an expression of loving kindness, that actually uh, I'm seen and I'm heard and I'm received, and that my suffering is seen and heard and acknowledged not fixed so much as to actually be really held in the cradle of kindness or that my joy and my my good qualities or my good fortune is also seen and rejoiced in without envy you know those are almost the biggest gifts that we can give one another the most healing and the most um nurturing you know this is how we create thriving children and it's how we help each other to be thriving human beings. And so to also just, you know, one can reflect from that angle, what's it like, to, what would it mean to be, to you to be on the receiving end of these things? 
and uh, I always I've said this so many times and you know those of you who've listened to me bang on about these things before we've heard it but I love the the story of Mother Teresa where somebody asked her what she what she does when she prays or what she did when she prayed and she said uh, what I'm going to mangle this now but um, what do you what do you uh, say what, to God what do you say to God? And she says, I, I don't say anything, I just listen. And so they said, what does he say to you? He doesn't say anything, he just listens. And I find that so beautiful, really. It kind of sums it up for me. And in fact, meditation really is a practice of profound listening, inherently compassionate, inherently kind. Well, there's so much more we could say, and we've got a bit of time to say it tomorrow. I'm, I'm happy to end on that beautiful note, if, if you are, Jaya, unless there's anything you'd like to add. No, I'm happy to return to the listing silence. Because <laughs> mm. we, could, we could continue ad infinitum, but I think mm. good point to mm. But uh, yeah, I really, um, I love that sense you've given us of practice as being about listening, you know. Surely it's what our world needs, like it's what our hearts need and our relationships need. They need that kind of attuned listening. And perhaps just to, to finish with that <clears throat> Zen story about uh, the student asking the teacher, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? Which is a big question, isn't it? It's kind of, why are we doing this? You know, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And the answer comes back, an appropriate response. An appropriate response. And that sense of appropriateness, that attunement to the appropriateness and the appropriate response in the situation that comes from learning to listen more deeply to ourselves, to our relationships, to others, to the situations that we find ourselves in, in our families, our workplaces, our communities, our society, our world. So maybe more of that uh, tomorrow. But, uh, shall we pause for a moment? Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for everyone for listening and humoring us in our experiments. <laughs> and I hope it's been helpful to you to do. Thank you, Jaya. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.